couple of weeks ago on Sunday night, we were looking together at Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. And we were looking at the fourth commandment. And last time we looked at it pretty much just in its basic meaning and how it would have functioned and applied in the context of ancient Israel. And toward the end of the message a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that one of the issues that comes up is how do we apply this command to our lives now as New Testament Christians? And so that it's, a, it's a, an important question, and it relates to a huge issue that Christians have debated for centuries, and that is what our relationship is as New Testament believers to the Old Testament law. That, that issue, that relationship, has been a source of discussion, debate, sometimes controversy, ever since the very beginning. If you remember, even in the early years of the church, this discussion came up, specifically with regard to circumcision. And that is, how are Gentile believers to be integrated into the people of God? Do they need to undergo circumcision as Jewish believers? were already circumcised, having come out of Judaism. And so this question of New Testament believers, Old Testament law, it's a very old question. And a lot of people have disagreed over it, and specifically when you get into the particulars of how we apply it to our lives as believers. And so I just want to take some a few minutes tonight to think about this specific command in relationship to us as New Testament believers. And what I thought I would do is just briefly remind us of what this Sabbath command meant for an Old Testament Israelite. One of the things that I think is really helpful whenever we want to apply Scripture and and make a valid, legitimate application of Scripture to our lives is to start with what it originally meant and how it would have originally been applied to the people then. So... Let's start there just for a moment. So how would an Old Testament Israelite have understood and applied this fourth command? Well, the fourth command to honor the Sabbath day and to keep it holy is rooted in creation, isn't it? It's rooted in creation. The Word of God says for six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested. And so God consecrated. He sanctified the seventh day. And so the seventh day, and uniquely the seventh day was holy because it was the day on which the Lord rested after creation. And so in this, God himself provided the first example of resting on the Sabbath day. And he asked his people to follow his example and rest as he did. And so it's rooted in creation. And the essential application, the way that this command was obeyed in Old Testament Israel was primarily from by ceasing to work. That's really what the verb that out of which we get the word Sabbath from the Hebrew verb behind that means to cease or to stop. And so the idea is to stop labor, to stop work and to spend a day in rest in honor to the Lord. And so it was a rest from all ordinary work and labor from the head of society, from Moses, all the way down to the lowliest animal, the beast of burden. 
And so even the slaves, the foreigner, those that the animals that worked in the field, they were all to be given a day off on the seventh day. On the seventh day, it was also a time of community worship and praise. The people would gather together and worship. It was a day of sacrifice in the Old Testament. We see many places where on the Sabbath day, it was a time for sacrifices to be made. So it was a day of sacrifice, a day of worship, a day of rest. It was also an opportunity to, for the Israelites to trust God and to remind themselves that they are ultimately dependent upon him. And we see that in the very first application of the Sabbath to the people of Israel when the Lord provided manna. Because he provided manna for six days, and then he said to them, on the seventh day, you are to rest. And that resting on the seventh day strongly communicated the idea of dependence on God. Because you have to trust God on the sixth day to provide enough to last you through the seventh day. Because you're not supposed to go out and gather and work on the seventh day. So it was a day of dependence, uh, of trust, of reminding themselves that what they had was not ultimately because of their own labors and their own ingenuity, but ultimately what they had was because of the gracious hand of God. And so it was a reminder to trust him and to thank him for his provision. It was a gift of God to his people. He blessed them with this as a gift to have a day of rest, which was really unknown in the ancient world. And especially when you consider the context, the circumstances out of which they came, they were slave laborers in Egypt. And now God was giving them a day of rest every week to do no work at all. It was a day of rest to be shared with everyone in the land, even those who were not Israelites. Even those who may not have even believed in God, in Yahweh. If they were a part of if they were gathered with his people, if they lived later on in the land of Israel, sojourning as a foreigner, they too were given the day off as a day of rest. And a couple of weeks ago, we noticed that in Exodus 31, the Sabbath is described as a special sign from God to his people Israel. It was a sign of the covenant. Exodus 31 describes it that way. And so in, in many ways, much like the rainbow is a sign, a symbol, a seal of God's covenant with Noah, as circumcision was a sign, a seal, a symbol of God's covenant with Abraham, so the Sabbath is a sign, symbol, and seal of God's covenant with Israel at Sinai. And so this was the mark that they belonged to God. They were his people. And so for the Israelite people, it was a day to remember, a day to trust, it was a day to worship, and it was a day to rest. That was the essential meaning of it in the Old Testament. And we saw last time that they, it was taken very seriously, wasn't it? That to dishonor God on the Sabbath day, to work on the Sabbath day, to disobey this command, was to invite death as a judgment. So this was a very serious command for the Old Testament Israelites. It was a day to honor God and to rest. So what then does it mean for us as New Testament Christians? What does it mean for us? Well, I think it helps if we'll start first with Jesus in the Gospels. Because interestingly enough, and that's one of the reasons I read from John 5 in our scripture reading tonight, is 
throughout the Gospels, and you see this in every single one of the Gospels, you see multiple occasions where Jesus is in confrontation with the religious leaders over the Sabbath day. And I don't think that's an accident that, that this, for some reason, this particular command of the Old Testament, of the Ten Commandments, that this was the one in which Jesus and the Pharisees were often in contention. And so many, many times, and I just went through and, and I saw at least eight or nine examples in the Gospels where Jesus does things on the Sabbath day that gets the religious leaders upset with him. And so whether it be healing a blind man or healing a person with a withered hand or healing someone who is lame, someone who had a sickness, an illness, many times we see Jesus doing it on the Sabbath day and sometimes intentionally doing it on the Sabbath day because he knew that the religious leaders were there. It was almost as if Jesus wanted to create that controversy between himself and the Pharisees. And I think one of the reasons for that is because the Pharisees had a very flawed view of the Sabbath day. For the Pharisees, much like a lot of the rest of their tradition, the Pharisees had built up all these extra rules and regulations and traditions around the Sabbath day to protect it. So it's like they built fences around the Sabbath day with their traditions so that nobody would break the Sabbath. And so their thinking was, if you don't break all these rules that we set up, then you won't break the Sabbath day. And so in, in some of the rabbinical literature that we have from Israel, we see that, that the Pharisees essentially set up about 39 rules about observance of the Sabbath day. And so we saw it in John 5, where Jesus heals the lame man, and he says, pick up your bed and walk. And the Pharisees see him and say, what are you doing? You shouldn't be carrying your mat on the Sabbath day. So they had all these rules. One of the rules that I read one time is, is so ridiculous, it's funny. And, and that is that on the Sabbath day, apparently you were not allowed to spit on the ground. Because they viewed that as fertilizing or, or plowing the ground getting it ready for work. So those kinds of things. And, and the way that the Pharisees acted, they, and, and this was their very legal way of thinking, was you could only travel a certain distance from your house on the Sabbath day, but the Pharisees and their kind of minutia, footnote, small print way of thinking about law, they would say, okay, I can only go so far from my house, so I'll take part of my house with me. And they would take a chair and they would set it down at the end of the distance. And they could travel another length of distance because this was a part of their house that was there in the middle. Those are the kinds of things that the Pharisees set up. And so they had all these rules and regulations and they approached it very legalistically to the point where the Sabbath had become a burden on people. And so I think Jesus is intentionally creating these controversies with the Pharisees to show them that you've got it all wrong. That the Sabbath was never intended to be this heavy burden that, that people had to make sure that they were crossing all their T's and dotting their I's. That the Sabbath was given as a gift from God to his people. Jesus even says the Sabbath was made for man. It was given from God as a gift of rest to cease from labor, not meant to be an onerous burden to have to carry all these legalistic rules. 
And so we see several of these instances in which Jesus confronts the, the ritualism and the legalism of his day, specifically with regard to the Sabbath. And so I kind of made a list of, of what all of these encounters show in the Gospels about Jesus and about our relationship with the Sabbath. I just want to kind of run through some of these. One of the things that, that Jesus and his actions on the Sabbath show is that worship and focus on the word of God is important on the Sabbath because Jesus would often, it was his pattern to go into the synagogue and read scripture and study scripture on the Sabbath day. And that's why we find Jesus in the temple or in the synagogues often on the Sabbath day, because that was his pattern. So he honored the Sabbath day by worshiping and by spending time in scripture. But one of the contentions with the Pharisees was, uh, can we allow deeds of mercy on the Sabbath day? Because it seemed like the Pharisees would get upset every time that Jesus would heal because they viewed it as Jesus working on the Sabbath day when he healed someone. And so Jesus confronted them every time and said, is it, is it not lawful to do a deed of mercy, to do an act of love on the Sabbath day? And he even used the example of if you have an ox who is stuck in a ditch, won't you rescue him and pull him out on the Sabbath day? And the, the idea there is, isn't this woman that I'm healing so much more important than an ox who's stuck in a ditch? And so Jesus taught the Pharisees, tried to show them that deeds of mercy are allowed on the Sabbath. And not only are they allowed, but they're important. The Sabbath day is not only a day on which you can do deeds of mercy, it is a day on which you should look for those who are in need and do deeds of mercy. And so Jesus showed that the needs of people are more important than legalistic observance of a written code. Jesus understood it as love of God, love of neighbor. And when legalistic codes get in the way of loving God and loving neighbor, we've distorted the law. We've misunderstood it. And so Jesus says people's needs, loving others, loving God is important on the Sabbath. He also taught the Pharisees and us that there's always work being done on the Sabbath. He said, my father is working to this day. And I, too, am working. And so there's good deeds that are being done on the Sabbath day all the time. And I think one of the things that, that these controversies show in the Gospels is that a new era is dawning. The Gospels, the time when Jesus was here and ministering and teaching before his death, burial, and resurrection, it was really a time of transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And he specifically mentions that in some cases where he talks about putting new wine into old wineskins. In other words, this is a new age. The kingdom of God has come. Something new is dawning. And these controversies with the Pharisees show that, that there's something important going on here. He taught them that obedience is better than ritual observance. Mercy to people is better than ritual religious observance. The Sabbath was given as a gift of mercy to people. The Sabbath is to serve people, to help people. And one other important point that Jesus makes in these Sabbath controversies is this. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
In fact, he says that in many occasions. He says, so th- I, I've done this so that you may know that the Son of Man, a title for the Messiah, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And so Jesus had the right to establish what is right and wrong because he's the lawgiver, isn't he? He's the divine word of God. And so as the lawgiver, he is the ultimate judge and interpreter of the law. One greater than Moses was there. And if he says they accused him of breaking the law, how ironic that they're accusing the lawgiver as breaking the law. Isn't he the best interpreter of what the law means? And that its intention was to help people and be a blessing to people, not to be a burden on people. And so Jesus established his authority in in these controversies with the Pharisees. And so Jesus' actions on the Sabbath, they point to the dawning of a new day under a new covenant that would be ratified with his own blood. I think it also helps us to think about how Jesus, in, in his coming, transforms our relationship with the law. Because in Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18, Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And the idea of fulfill here is the idea of bringing something to its intended goal. Bringing something to its intended goal and conclusion. One of the illustrations that I saw about this that I think is really helpful is the idea of running a race. In that the finish line is an end, but it's also the goal, isn't it? So when when you cross the finish line, the race is over. But also the finish line is the goal that you were shooting for, that you were aiming toward. That's the idea of the law in relationship to Jesus. The purpose of the law was to point to and bring us to the coming of Christ. And now Christ has come, and so the law as a unit, as a a covenant that God gave to Israel, it has fulfilled its function in bringing us to the coming of Christ. And now Christ is fulfilling that. He is, he is, in a sense, swallowing it all up into himself and fulfilling it all. Jesus refers to this dawning of a new age in Luke 16, verse 16, when he says, the law and the prophets were in force until John. Speaking of John the Baptist, who was a contemporary of Jesus. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, and everyone is urged to enter it. In other words, Jesus referred to a a change of eras is happening. The law and the prophets until now, until the time of John the Baptist, until my time, and now the kingdom of God is being proclaimed. Paul said in Romans 10 verse 4 that Christ is the end or the goal of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So the law as a a tool of righteousness, that is over. And now the law has fulfilled its purpose and Christ is the end. He is the goal. He is the finish line of the law. And now it is 
the righteousness of Christ being proclaimed in the gospel to everyone who believes. And so we have Christ fulfilling the law. And with that fulfilling of the law, there are changes. There are, there are things that transform for his New Testament believers. So I think we would all acknowledge that there are some things that are now different for us now as New Testament believers that are not the way they were for Old Testament believers under the law. One clear example is we no longer offer sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus is the last one. He's the last and final sacrifice. And that's the argument of the, of the writer of Hebrews, that there is no longer a need for any other sacrifice because the final ultimate one has come. I think we would also readily see from the discussion in Acts 15, as well as in Galatians and other places in the epistles, that circumcision, that sign given to Abraham, is no longer universally required to be included in the people of God. That was a contentious issue in Paul's day. There were, there were Jews who believed in Jesus, believed that Jesus was their Savior, that he was the Messiah, Jews who believed in him, but these Jews still wanted to hold on to the Old Testament law and all of its provisions and say that if a Gentile now wants to come and believe in Jesus Christ, that Gentile also needs to undergo circumcision as it was a sign given to Abraham. And Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, was saying, no, this is now a new age in Christ. A new era has dawned, and now the gospel is being proclaimed to all the world, and it is no longer necessary for Gentiles to come under this requirement in order to be included in the people of God. They got together as the apostles and as the elders of the church in Jerusalem, and they discussed it in Acts chapter 15. And they came to a harmonious decision, and that is that circumcision is no longer required of Gentiles to become a part of the people of God. So, and we can see other examples too with the food laws. In Acts chapter 10, Peter sees this vision of a sheet being lowered and all of these unclean animals on it that Peter has never eaten in his entire life that according to Leviticus 11 are outlawed. They're unclean. But God says, here, Peter, eat. Why? To show Peter that now the gospel is opening up to the Gentiles. And these barriers, these walls of division, like circumcision and like the food laws, those walls of division are coming down so that the gospel may be proclaimed to the world and that there may be one sheepfold and one shepherd. And I think in many ways, Sabbath, this Sabbath command is like some of those other issues that have transformed from the going from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And let me approach it this way as we kind of bring this to a conclusion of how we apply it. Think about this. What, what day is today? This is Sunday, right? When was the seventh day? That was yesterday. Something's changed, right? So you see in Matthew 28, in John 21, that, and all the Gospels describe it. 
Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And then from that point forward, you see several examples in the book of Acts, as well as in Corinthians and other epistles, where the people of the church are meeting together and they're worshiping, they're breaking bread, they're having communion. When are they doing this? On the first day of the week. So something has changed from the old covenant to the new covenant. Now, the issue then is, is Sunday the new Sabbath? In other words, have we just taken everything that was Old Testament Sabbath and have we just moved it all to the the new day on the first day of the week? I would say it's more complex than that. Because according to the Old Testament, if you went out and picked up sticks on the seventh day, you were to be put to death. So if you go out and pick up sticks this afternoon or this evening when you get home from church, or if you take your trash out tonight after supper or whatever, we don't have to stone you. Things have changed. This is now the new covenant era. So how do we apply this as New Testament Christians? Well, let me give you a couple of scriptures that I think show that the, the observance of the Sabbath for New Testament Christians has now become a matter of conscience. One of them is in Romans chapter 14. So in Romans chapter 14, one of the things that Paul is doing in Romans 14 and 15 is he is dealing with these kinds of issues of when there are debates or discussions about what, what should be obeyed and what should not be obeyed. So in Romans 14, in verse number two, he says, for example, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. So what's that issue there? It's the food laws, isn't it? Specific food laws, restrictions on what can be eaten. So who are you to judge, verse 4, someone else's servant? To their own master, servant, stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Well, now we're talking about days on the week, days on the calendar, right? Another considers every day alike. Would Sabbath be included in that? Seems to be that Paul has in mind all of the special holy days from Old Testament Israel. All the feast days, Feast of Tabernacles, the the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all these special days, and I believe also including the once-a-week daily Sabbath. One person regards one day more sacred than another, more holy than another. But another considers every day alike. What does he say? Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. So if one regards this day as holy, as special, as set apart, he does it to the Lord. And if one regards every day alike, 
He does it to the Lord. And the idea here is not that one treats every day as profane and nothing, but that now the person in the new covenant, as a new covenant believer in Christ, he sees every day as a day to be worshiping God. Every day is holy. Every day is sacred. Now, under this grace that has been given to us in Christ. As Paul says in Romans 12, let us offer up our bodies a living sacrifice every day to the worship and service of God. And so Paul seems to be including special holy days, Sabbath included in that, in which it becomes a matter of conscience that each person needs to be fully convinced in their own mind. I don't think there's any way that Paul could say that if it was still a mandatory, obligatory command for New Testament believers. I'll give you one other one, and that's in Colossians 2. In Colossians 2, and this is in verse 16, Colossians 2, verse 16, kind of a similar context of judging one another about different practices that people have. He says in Colossians 2.16, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Again, food laws, regulations. Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. So here he specifically includes Sabbath day in, in talking about special holy days. He says, don't let anyone judge you about these things. Why? And here's the principle of Jesus fulfilling the law. Verse 17, these, that is these regulations, these laws, they're a shadow of the things that were to come. But the reality is found in Christ. So Christ fulfills these things. And his point is now the gospel is going out. The law has been fulfilled in Christ. And some of these laws and regulations that separated Old Testament Israel from all of its neighbors, some of those barriers are coming down so that the gospel may go out freely. And so Paul seems to include Sabbath as one of those things that falls now under conscience. The writer of Hebrews seems to suggest that now, as believers, our true rest is found in Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, now in Christ, because of faith, we can cease from our labors. We don't have to work for our salvation. We don't have to work for our righteousness. We can cease from our labors in Christ. Jesus is really the fulfillment of the Sabbath, and that in him we have rest. What did Jesus say to those who would be his disciples? Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. And you'll find rest for your souls. And so Jesus is really the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And Hebrews 4 also seems to point forward toward a, a glorious rest that we will one day all have in the heavenly city, in the new kingdom when Jesus returns. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And it now has, for New Testament Christians, become a matter of conscience in the way in which we observe it. So I would say this, that the New Testament speaks of 
the Christians coming together and worshiping on the Lord's day. On Sunday, on the first day of the week, in honor of the resurrection of Jesus. And so in a sense, every day, every Sunday that we gather, it is like Easter Sunday. Because every Sunday is a memorial of the resurrected Christ. And so we come and we gather and we worship on the first day of the week. But it is not exactly in the same form as the Old Testament Sabbath. Christ has fulfilled it. What are some things that we can learn and maybe put into practice in our lives that we can learn from the Sabbath? One, I think, is God is the Lord of time. God's the Lord of time. It's one of the principles behind the Old Testament Sabbath. That principle is still true, isn't it? God's the Lord of time. He is sovereign over our lives. And if he demands our time, then he deserves our time. So he is the Lord, sovereign over our time. I think something else that the Sabbath teaches us is that we are to be a working people. Normally, we are to be a working people. The Sabbath command said, six days you shall do all your work. It assumes that we will be a working, a, an industrious, a, a busy people but that we will at times come apart to rest. So we should be a a working people. A time of rest is a gift of God to human beings, and regular rest should be taken. We need to take rest. And this principle of a day in seven is a good principle to operate by. All time should be set aside as holy to God because it all belongs to him. And the Sabbath also teaches us that we are ultimately dependent on God for all things. He gives us breath. He gives us life. Everything that we have is dependent on him. And when we rest, we're saying it doesn't all depend on me. We need that reminder every now and then. Because some of us think that if I stop, everything's going to fall apart. No, God says, I want you to stop. I want you to rest. And I want you to see that I have things under control and that we depend on him. And so in the New Testament, we're not to observe Sabbath in a strict legalistic way, but now we observe it in a way that honors its true intent, which is to find times of rest, to find times of worship, to find times of doing deeds of mercy for one another, and to find times in which we can remember what our God has done for us And we look forward to the ultimate rest that we have in the kingdom of God. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him we have true rest. We thank you that he has provided everything that we need for life and for godliness. We thank you that one day when he returns we will enjoy the eternal perfect rest that you have provided and prepared for each of your children. God, help us to honor you with our lives, not just one day of the week, but every day of the week. May we regard you as holy. May we offer up our bodies as living sacrifices to you every day because you are the Lord and master over us. And because you have redeemed us and made us your precious possession. So, Lord, bless us as your people as we seek to honor you with our days and with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.